Sunday in November means that you are not hearing the intro music. You are hearing me because another coach has been fired. Of course, fitting fashion. Get your laughs out now. Everybody knew it was going to happen. You already knew. Florida fires Dan Mullen. Of course, I recorded an entire podcast right before that. And some people are going to say, oh, why don't you just wait two hours later? Well, you know, I've done that before. It never works out. That's just inevitable. It's always going to end up this way. I'm always going to end up recording before a head coach gets fired. But nonetheless, wanted to react to that, put that at the top of this podcast. I have some stuff in the episode kind of digging into his shortcomings and what didn't work against Mizzou and just kind of more of more of the same of what we've seen from Dan Mullen. And this was inevitable. It was. And it got to that point over the last few weeks. Not as simple as pointing to someone's record and saying, oh man, that guy was 34 and 15. How could he get fired there? It must just be the nature of the job. And part of it is the nature of the job. I mean, let's let's be real. This is coach number five in the post-Spurrier era in a 20-year stretch. This is a guy who started off his time at Florida with three consecutive New Year's Six Bowls. None of his predecessors did that. Nobody had ever started off at a new job with two consecutive New Year's Six Bowl victories. Dan Mullen did that. He did some great things at Florida. And starting off your time there with three consecutive top 15 finishes, Florida fans would have taken that. They gladly would have taken that in the aftermath of the Jim McElwain era. But this is still a job that chews you up and spits you out. And it's unlike maybe any in all of college football. And I've tried to figure out for years why that's the case. And I've probably overthought this to a certain extent. And I think part of it is that you are talking about a team that has won three national championships in a 25 year stretch. So take your average age of a Florida fan. Everybody for the most part remembers that. Even if you were in, even if you're in college right now, Chances are you remember Chris Leak, or maybe you at least have some sort of memories of that, and you definitely remember Tebow, right? So if we're talking about that as your average age, then you've watched Florida win national championships with three different quarterbacks, probably three different systems because the system with Chris Leak and Tim Tebow was different. And you've had you know two head coaches do that, obviously, but you've seen the ceiling. And so many programs don't even know what the ceiling looks like And Mullen's undoing, of course, was that he wasn't going to be a guy to get you to the ceiling. And I would love to be able to replay this with a few different quarterback decisions, one of which being the original decision to go with Emory Jones instead of Matt Corral. Hindsight's 20-20 with that. And there were points last year when people were saying, oh my God, how could you have loved Matt Corral when Emory Jones looks more promising and Matt Corral keeps throwing all those interceptions. Yeah, take that for what it is. But, you know, what about the decision this year? If Mullen goes to Anthony Richardson in game two and just decides, you know what, I'm not going to be loyal to Emory Jones. I'm going to go with a different guy. Then does this season play out differently? We don't know. Nobody could have predicted two months ago that Florida's floor would be this bad. And it is this bad. Going two and six in SEC play is a stunning thought. And that's going to be one of those things that we're going to look back on and we're just going to be like, wow, that really happened. That really spiraled that quickly. And Florida just always does. I don't know why. Even with Urban, where it spiraled in 2010, of course, the first year of the post-Hebo era, and all of a sudden Urban is just too burnt out. This job is too much for him. Go back to Spurrier when he left. He had players that when he told the team, he... 
players were shocked. I mean, it was an unbelievable thing to think about a guy who was there for, you know, 11 years, just be like, yeah, you know what? I've spent enough time in the college game. I think I'm done. I mean, they, they built a statue of the guy. And even he was like, yeah, a little over a decade. That, that's good enough for me. And that was before the SEC got to what it is today because now that's a lifetime. But then, I mean, that's really not that long of a time to be at one specific place when you essentially have a lifetime contract. But Florida is going to do what Florida does. And I'm not blaming fans for that necessarily because fans should have high expectations, man. Like, you have that recruiting ground. You've seen those offenses. You've seen what it's like when it's at its best. And when you feel like you have a coach who's not getting you there and he's taking you further in the opposite direction, of course you're going to be frustrated. That's natural. I don't know if there's a place in all of college football. Maybe Oklahoma is the best modern-day example with the way that things have played out this year with Caleb Williams and Spencer Rattler. But I don't know if there's a fan base in all of college football who has higher expectations of their quarterback position. And it's something that I've talked to Luke Del Rio about a lot. And, you know, Luke is, is a, a bit of a, you know, a college football nomad, having been at three different schools. He grew up around the sport, and he's seen what it's like in different areas of the country. And he's lived everywhere with, obviously, what his dad was. And one of the things he just said repeatedly was, man, Florida is just different. It just is. And I wonder what it's going to look like for the next coach at Florida. I really do. I don't know what direction Scott Strickland is going to go in. That's another part of this. A lot of Florida fans were saying, hey, Scott Strickland doesn't want to fire Dan Mullen. That's his guy from Mississippi State. You know, this is trying to make his hire work. It got to the point, maybe it was after losing to South Carolina, where if you're Scott Strickland, you have to think about your own job security. It gets to a certain place where it's like, man, if I stick my neck out for this guy, I'm going to be out of a job. I thought Mullen... And I've said this before, so this isn't breaking news or anything, but I've, I've always been told that this, this goes back not just to the Oklahoma game, but the way that he responded to players and their desire to, um, to protest in the Black Lives Matter movement. And from what I had been told, he didn't respond to those situations the way that you would hope a, a coach, a leader of young men would. And a lot of players resented him for that. And there were people within that locker room who will, will tell you, look, like it just didn't necessarily work out. And he wasn't the personality fit. And there were a lot of people around that program who I knew grew frustrated and understandably so. I mean, to, to, to see some of the comments, like, you know, the, the comment from Diabate, where Diabate says earlier in the year about being, you know, kind of the foot soldier. And he just kind of goes out there and goes with the coaching staff, tells him what to do. I mean, that's a well-spoken dude who isn't going to necessarily fumble his words. And it felt like, man, we're doing what the coaching staff is telling us, but that's all we can really do. And if they're going to put us in bad spots, that's it. Dan Mullen decided to bring back a defensive coordinator who had his team's worst defense since the Woodrow Wilson administration. And if you're being paid as a top five coach in this sport, those are the things you have to avoid. You just can't do that. You have to have a higher standard of yourself. You have to have a higher standard of your program. And Dan Mullen was stubborn. And it's hard not to be stubborn when you have gotten to this level of success. That's something I feel like I've brought up a lot with Gus Malzahn and his lack of desire to shift his offense with the times because he wrote the book on the hurry up offense. And Dan Mullen got to this level of success by saying, my way is the best way. 
And at the end, it clearly wasn't. And other teams, other programs who had started over had passed up Florida. And that's a tough, tough pill to swallow. I mean, think about that. You lose games this season to Kentucky, South Carolina, and lastly to Mizzou. I don't think Dan Mullen saves his job if he wins that game against Mizzou. I think the hay was in the barn. I think the South Carolina game was really what drove it home that a change needed to be made. This is all about booster momentum. And there was enough of it within that program. There just was. I, I just kind of just kind of wonder now, what's next? Because this fizzles out so quickly. And I wonder if the market is going to dictate that this job is has been a dead end for, for some of these coaches. And I know Will Muschamp was still able to get the South Carolina job, but I mean, gosh, it's, it's, it's become a really difficult place to sustain success. It just has. And that's not to say that it's a bad job or anything like that, but you kind of have to look at the track record at this point. And it doesn't buy you job security to win division titles, to even win national titles. It doesn't necessarily, you know, I, I realize Urban went out on his own time, but still he got burnt out from the job. And that's that's the, the nature of what Florida demands. So what does this next hire look like? What direction does Scott Strickland go? I think there are a few names that come to mind. If I've said this before, I'll say it again. I would still go to Lane Kiffin. I would still make Lane Kiffin say no. I think it's going to be really interesting to see if Brian Johnson gets an interview. I would expect he would. Somebody who was at Dan Mullen's side was the first black offensive coordinator in the history of Florida football and surprisingly left after last, last season to go take the quarterback's coach job with the Philadelphia Eagles, which was just a head-scratching move that I think was a bit telling given what we've talked about with the nature of, of Dan Mullen and his reputation within the program. So I, I wonder about those two guys. I wonder about Dan Lanning, somebody who I think could have a lot of success if given the opportunity and think about taking away maybe Georgia's ace in the hole, right? Like what, what that could do to swing momentum back in Florida's favor. You wonder about that, even though we've said, oh, you got to be an offensive mind. You got to score points in Florida. That's what they love. I don't know. I think, I think Florida fans want winning football. I think that's what they want more than anything else. I can't say that I blame them. So um, I'll have a lot more thoughts on the coaching search and what ultimately becomes of this. But Dan Mullen, $12 million buyout. It appears he's going to be getting all of that money. It didn't matter that he got the raise, that he got the extension going into this season, as we talked about a lot with our good friend Matt Hayes. There was still this divide. And maybe part of it's the show cause. Maybe part of it is the way that he responded post-game with some of his comments. But Dan Mullen couldn't get out of his own way, and he spiraled. And now he's out of a job. All right, here is the rest of the Sunday Cake Week recap pod. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Okay, so Will is not going to be on this week's pod because Will woke up feeling not well at all. Will did not drink an ounce last night, and let's just say he is a bit under the weather today, so letting Will sit out this one. He texted me this morning. He's like, I would not be very useless if I came on the pod today. Totally understand. Not a big deal, so we're going solo. We do have a lot to get to. Cake Week was interesting. Not like upset filled from cake opponents, but we did get upsets to clinch bowl eligibility in two of those four SEC games. And in the two other SEC games, the underdogs covered in pretty convincing fashion on the road against top 10 teams. 
By the way, we have an Alabama-Georgia SEC championship. Our long national nightmare is over. That's locked in for the first time in three whole years, so pretty historic feat there. Those four games, the SEC against SEC games this week, are the ones that we'll be talking about today, along with some playoff talk. And by we, I mean me. We've also got a rare Sunday interview for the people. I've teased this one for a little bit. Former Arkansas and Western Kentucky quarterback Ty Story joined me. We talked about basically getting Chad Morris fired and what he took from that whole experience. I asked him off air if he had ever heard of Story of a Hurl. OG listeners of this show know what I'm talking about. He hadn't heard of it, but he was indeed a fan. So shout out to, to Marler for that one. But first, before we get to everything, if you don't have just bottles of Texas Pete at this point and some Texas Pete dust and all thanks Texas Pete, what are you doing? What are you waiting on? Football season, yeah, we, we only got a couple, we only have one week left of the regular season, then it's bowl season. Doesn't matter. Texas Pete is a year-round deal. And while it might be the perfect time to load up on some Texas Pete, you should really just do that. 24 7 365 have it multiple meals a day like i do it's getting a little chilly you want to spice things up you're looking for something new to implement into whatever you're eating whether it's chili i had some tortilla soup that's great in it you you just have you have your eggs as tam matthews our producer always says you got popcorn whatever it is get some texas pete in there for our listeners we are offering 20 percent off of your order when you go to texaspeat.com use that promo code saturday down south that is all caps all one word, Saturday down south. It's that easy. Do that. Get yourself some hot sauces, hats, recipes. Get, get hot sauces by the box. Do whatever you can to stock up on some Texas Pete right now. That's all you got to do. TexasPete.com, code Saturday down south, all caps, all one word, 20% off your entire order. All right, Arkansas, Bama. Remember how we said this game was going to be huge? for Arkansas's offseason. You better believe it was. Sam Pittman said afterwards that the days of getting their teeth kicked in were over, which was something we've wondered about. We wondered about with this team after the way that they showed up against Georgia, which was clearly overmatched. That game was over from the jump. And we're like, all right, if they come out against Bama and it looks really similar, we're gonna say Arkansas is still a long ways away. But this ended up being one of the better SEC games all year because the quarterbacks were brilliant. And once again, Bama couldn't put a team away. Fifth time in seven SEC games that Alabama found itself in a one-score game in the fourth quarter. And I say that not to downgrade what Arkansas did because I was darn impressed, at least on the offensive side. KJ was a boss. He continues to get better and better. That back shoulder ball that he had to, to Traylon Burks, when Traylon Burks is nursing that shoulder injury, money. Burks made himself some money because not only did he ball out, but he gave everything and more to that team on Saturday. Clearly not at 100%, dealing with a collarbone, chest area, shoulder, whatever. That's like the, the, the hockey definition of an upper body injury where he just looked like he was really laboring with that right side. So then, of course, he goes out there at the very end to try and recover an onside kick, and he got just depleted by Will Anderson on the block. Some said it was a dirty play. If you actually consider the context of it, I thought it was just Burks kind of being caught off guard. He didn't have that full strength on the right side to brace for it like he normally would have, but kind of an ugly way for that game to end for him. He had to be helped off. 
I hope, hope, hope that it's not too serious. He didn't just play his last college game because he is so fun and he is so good. And that guy deserves to be a first round pick in the NFL draft. Bama couldn't really stop him. Bama couldn't stop the fake field goal jump pass either. What a play call that was in that spot. And Sam Pittman's smile at the end of that was just everything. I can guarantee you the second that happened, there was a portion of the fan bases on both sides who thought, wait a minute, is this about to happen? Or maybe they thought that when Monteric Brown, once again, came up with the key turnover late, when it looked like Cameron Latu had a touchdown, that they're like, wait, is, is this really about to happen? Are we witnessing another one of these, you know, Bama, vulnerable, kind of out of nowhere, falling to an SEC West team? Is, is Lightning going to strike twice? But that didn't happen for a couple of reasons. Two reasons, really. One is that Will Anderson is just not fair. <laughs> Where this Alabama defense would be without him, I have no idea. He needs to be in New York for the Heisman ceremony. I keep looking at all these plays where I'm like, oh, surely he was offsides. And then you just realize that he just, no, he just times everything perfectly. And he wins that battle on the outside so effortlessly that it looks like cheating even though it's not. So he needs to be in New York for the Heisman ceremony and sort of his, his teammate on the opposite side. Bryce Young is not a boring Heisman favorite. And I feel like we're now, after the way that Saturday played out in the Bryce Young versus C.J. Stroud debate, get ready for that over the course of the next two weeks. That's going to be all over the place, and understandably so, because both played nearly perfect on Saturday against top 25 teams. Bryce Young broke an Alabama single-game passing record that had stood for 52 years. Not Jalen, not Tua, not Mac, but Scott Hunter. <laughs> That's right, Scott Hunter had the previous Alabama record for passing game yards, and Young broke it with 559 passing yards. He had more passing yards than any SEC quarterback ever with the exception of, and you know, Will, if you were on this podcast today, he would not be feeling too great about the answer to this question, but KJ Costello. That is the, the only SEC quarterback to ever have more passing yards in a game than what Bryce Young did on Saturday against Arkansas. Bryce was insane. And I know we're a bit numb to this at this point, and we're not just numb to it because it's Bryce Young, but we're numb to it because it's Bama quarterbacks, and that's just par for the course. Some will say that anyone could look good with Jameson Williams and John Mechie, but the two deep balls to Williams were just out of this world good, especially the first one. He buys time, he goes through his progressions, and then he drops it in a bucket in double coverage over the top. Bryce Young continues to get better. And he's just going to do those one or two things every single game where Saban's going to pull him aside and say, hey, you got that out of your system? Good. <laughs> like th that That's going to happen. I don't anticipate that changing. That might not even change next year in his pre-draft year because with the things that he does well with buying time, with doing the Russell Wilson type things to be able to scramble in his own unorthodox way, that's just going to happen every once in a while. And you're just going to kind of have to live with it. He's not going to play perfect football but when he goes backwards on a sack and he keeps going back and it's like a 15 yard loss and you're in field goal range you're like all right man <laughs> this is the type of stuff that you wish that you'd be able to correct but at the same time that skill set that presence of mind is what makes him so darn good Bryce Young still has a chance at 50 pre-Heisman touchdowns because he's at 40 total right now so he would essentially need five in the Iron Bowl and then five against Georgia which uh, for a Georgia defense that hasn't allowed more than two touchdowns all year in a game. Good luck with that, but the chance is still there. I don't know that Bryce Young wins the Heisman without beating Georgia, but Saturday was just awesome to watch him and K.J. Jefferson make plays 
all over the field for their teams. If you're still wondering, like, hey, when is this Bama team gonna figure it out? When are they gonna put it all together? When are they gonna have that foot on throat mentality? I just don't think that's changing anytime soon. I, I think this is who they are at this point. We're heading into the Iron Bowl, and I keep giving the stat over and over of five of seven SEC games in which it's been a one-score game in the fourth quarter. Bama's got major issues at right tackle. It doesn't really seem to matter who they continue to put in there. That guy just continues to get beat. They have a couple of coverage busts a game, and they face some quarterbacks, Hendon Hooker, KJ Jefferson, who have been capable of taking advantage of those coverage busts, Zach Calzada as well. They're so dependent on Will Anderson to get home, and Phil, Math Phil Mathis occasionally as well when he blows up a play in the backfield. Obviously, that's a, that, that's just the type of thing that you need to move, you know, to to keep somebody behind the sticks. But it does feel like it is so dependent on Will Anderson to get home, and every once in a while, Henry Toto will kind of make this like out of position touchdown saving tackle. I know they're all touchdown saving tackles, but it just feels like that's what he does every once in a while. But this is just who Bama is. Is Bama the number two team in the country right now? I don't think so. And I think Bama fans would probably agree with that, especially after what we saw from Ohio State on Saturday. We'll get to a little bit of that more later. But at the same time, this is kind of all you can ask for if you're a Bama fan. You are going to an SEC championship. You are in a really favorable position to go there with one loss because Auburn is now losers of three straight. And you're going to have a chance to offer up something that maybe Georgia hasn't seen quite yet from an offensive standpoint. And yeah, that's about as good as you can ask for in a year in which you have an all, like an all generational team within your conference, or at least an all generational, all generation defense. So Bama, life could be a whole lot worse. They don't have that second loss. And in a year in which it feels like everybody is just dropping like flies, Bama is one of those teams still standing. All right, Florida, Mizzou. <laughs> May the force be with you. Savage, total savage move by Eli Drinkwitz to bust out the Darth Vader line and the lightsaber, the lightsaber after that win. Revenge win, big time. What a moment for Drink. A two-point conversion walk-off winner to clinch bowl eligibility is rare. The fact that Drink did on did that play on the first overtime made up for the conservative and often frustrating play calling for most of that game, which if you search his mentions before that, Mizzou fans were none too pleased with the way that things were playing out. We're going to get to the Mullen part in a second here, but one thing on Drinkwitz real quick, that play call on the game winner was one of those, buddy, this better work type of plays. Because I bet the vast majority of Mizzou fans who saw Connor Bazelak float a pass to the end zone as he's fading away thought, oh crap, this mess of a play just cost us the football game. But why it worked was because Florida, when we questioned, I questioned all week, all year, are they really going to want to tackle Tyler Beatty? They were so keyed in on stopping him and that was, in a weird way, the key to that play. So in the first half, they shut down Tyler Beatty. I mean, make no mistake about it. They were ready to go. They deserve so much credit for that. They held them to 19 rushing yards in the first half. But in the second half, 60 minutes of Tyler Beatty is a difficult thing to stop. And he got going. I think he had over 120 rushing yards in the second half and in overtime. 
But why that play worked at the very end, that two-point conversion, that all-or-nothing two-point conversion, and why Drinkwitz knew it was going to work was because of a sequence that happened earlier in that game. When Mizzou is down 13-9 early in the fourth quarter, it's first and 25 from the Florida 41. Drink motions Beatty out wide. And he's got two tight ends set up on the right side, on the same side that Beatty's on, but they're bunched in line. So it looks like it's going to be set up for a little screen to Beatty. If you're breaking that down pre-snap, if you're breaking it down post-snap, everything suggests it's going to be a little screen to Beatty. And Florida is pressing him. So that's how the play starts out. But instead of that one tight end coming down to block that the man on Beatty, he slips through into the wheel route and, and past the DB who has eyes on Beatty for too long. And it turns into, boom, easy. Bazelak goes over the top. It's this go-ahead touchdown. So keep that in mind because after Mullen goes into his bag with, with the Philly special, which was a very brilliant play call in that spot that Mullen is not going to get credit for because he lost that game. But Mizzou scored on the second play of their overtime try on a run with Beatty. So on the two-point conversion, Beatty lines up in the backfield and Bazelak fakes play action and looks like he wants to target him in the flat. And they had another receiver, at least one other receiver, I believe, who kind of was, was drifting in that direction to the right side. Florida had two defenders ready for Beatty. And Zachary Carter probably wouldn't have even allowed Bazelak to get the ball over him because he was essentially untouched on that right side. Or at least he was made to believe he was untouched on that right side. But once again, the tight end faked the block, faked the block on Carter, and just kind of quietly slips past the defense. And this time it's Daniel Parker. He is wide open. I know that was was like not necessarily the design. And we found out afterwards, Drinkwood said that Parker was Bazelak's third option, which is crazy. And you kind of get why, because it's a really slow developing play. And ideally, you would just get someone who's not prepared to tackle Tyler Beatty in the flat, or you get somebody that's one step out of position to the right side, boom, easy pitch and catch. But instead, they run this slow developing play. Somehow, some way, it's a good design, and Bazelak is able to make a play with Zachary Carter barreling down on him, and Mizzou wins the football game. That play, though, was a reminder of even when you have a struggling quarterback and nothing really seems to be working all that well, Sometimes if you just have a dude who can scheme, you can give yourself a shot. Now, those are ironic words considering who Drinkwitz beat and then subsequently trolled immediately afterwards. I think Dan Mullen's gone. And look, I'm recording this at 1025 on Sunday morning. And I will be checking my phone all day to make sure that Dan Mullen is not fired. This could be cold taked, whatever. But my guess is that they're going to let him coach against Florida State because... Getting to a bowl game, he probably gives you the best chance to do that. Win one more game against your rival at home doesn't make a difference. He's not coaching for his job in that game. I think that ship has sailed, if I am guessing. But you never know. You can't help but point to specific instances in this game. Mullen was just so conservative in key spots, especially with over a minute left, and you need roughly, I don't know, what, three first downs to get into field goal range. And I get it, Florida is struggling with, in the kicking game. That's, that's you know, a well-documented issue. But instead, Mullen decides to wind the clock down and play for overtime in part because he didn't trust his kicker. But really, this was about not trusting your quarterback. 
as in the quarterback who is at the end of his fourth year in Mullen's system and actually looked okay in this game. I don't want to say Emory Jones was a world beater in this game, but he didn't look particularly bad. Mullen didn't want to push the issue. We play the results with these things, of course, because if Emory throws a pick at the end of regulation and then it sets up a game-winning field goal for Mizzou, we're going to blast Mullen and say that he should have been conservative knowing how mistake-prone Emory was. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Dan Mullen is now 0-7 in one-score games in the last two seasons. 0-7 in those spots. That is a tough look for a guy who was now 2-9 in his last 11 against Power 5 competition. Worst SEC record for Florida since expansion in 1992. Yikes. I haven't seen anyone, and I mean anyone, say the words, Mullen needs another year to figure this out. At this point, if you're Scott Strickland, it's so far in that direction that you have to be thinking about your own job security if you don't make this move. And that's what I think pushes him in this direction because in an ideal world, I, I tend to think that an eight and four Dan Mullen, a seven and five Dan Mullen would have actually been all right. But instead, the way that it's played out, I don't think Scott Strickland's gonna have a choice. Even if he doesn't want to fire Mullen, this is, the spot that Florida is now in because fans have given up hope and there really isn't a whole lot to, to believe that this is going to turn around next year either. And they're going to lose a lot of pieces on defense as well. And that's going to be part of this too. And why it's going to be so difficult to just rebuild this thing overnight, especially when you go two and six in SEC play, Florida went from feeling so good about the way that it played against Bama to at the end of the season, not being able to have, what are they, I think they were held under 100 rushing yards against this Mizzou run defense, who has figured things out. And Steve Wilkos, or Steve Wilkos, not Steve Wilkos, Steve Wilkos deserves credit for that. So tip of the cap to Mizzou for doing that and for putting Florida in some of those tough spots. Damian Pierce, who as we said, was pro football folks' highest graded running back in the country coming into this game, seven carries for seven yards in this one. Mizzou did a lot of things really, really well, and they've actually been much better against the run since the Georgia game. But Dan Mullen, I gotta think he's gone. And now he gets the Sickos Committee game of the week, game of the year maybe even, where he gets to play against Florida State. Winner gets to go to a bowl game. Maybe they go to the Liberty Bowl, I don't know. But Dan Mullen just continues to see, sink to new lows each and every week. And I truly feel bad for Florida fans at this point. I do, I, I really, really do. Because this is, it's one thing to, to lose games and to have a floor year, it's another to get embarrassed. And this was just a unique type of embarrassment, different than the South Carolina embarrassment, different than the Samford embarrassment, different than the Georgia embarrassment. But the wheels have fallen off in Gainesville, and I think Dan Mullen is not going to be the guy to get him on track. Auburn, South Carolina. Big, big game for Bowler Noble. Bowl for Shane Beamer. He showed me. Um, this was such a weird game. Just a weird, weird game. Auburn came out and looked like it was about to just steamroll South Carolina. Tank Bigsby was running like a man possessed. TJ Finley looked like the guy who torched South Carolina last year uh, with LSU. And you were thinking, well, you know, the Gamecocks, they're maybe just not quite ready to compete with a relatively competent team from the West. But Auburn couldn't do anything after going up 14 to nothing. Maybe I phrased that incorrectly. Auburn was a coaching nightmare after it went up 14 to nothing in the first quarter. Tank Bigsby had nine carries in the first quarter and looked as fresh as ever. 
That game flipped when Auburn decided to go for it on fourth and one from their own 35 with less than four minutes left in the second quarter. Tank wasn't even on the field, and he was not happy. He was pretty pissed off. They caught him on the sideline, uh, the ESPN cameras did, just shaking his head. And if you read some lips, it was very clear that he wanted to get the ball in that spot instead of letting a guy in his first start in your system try to float a ball to a tight end in double coverage. Can't say I blame Tank on that one. He got two carries in the second quarter. You can't have that. That's on Mike Bobo. And I don't know if that was a game in which Mike Bobo kind of got in his head back in Columbia or if he was just trying to preserve Tank, but it was weird. Another thing that I saw that was weird from Auburn, Tank after that play too, or after that sequence played out, he ran even harder, I thought. And he was looking like a guy who wanted to prove that he needs more touches. But Auburn took over down 21 to 17 in the fourth quarter with 538 left. You've got plenty of time in that spot. You don't have to be just pass only. If you, I, I realize it's Mike Bobo, so you can't exactly anticipate a hurry up offense here. But if you can't score a touchdown in 538, the way that the game is currently played in the college game with first downs, stop the clock, then just <laughs> turn in your play sheet, man, because this, this job isn't for you. You should be able to run the football in that spot. You have a guy that in that stage of the game should be hell to tackle. And again, it's a somewhat limited TJ Finley. So how many plays does Mike Bobo draw up for Tank on that series? None. Zip. Nada. Four plays. Had the big first down play to Shedrick Jackson. And then they ran it to Demetrius Robertson, of all people. Incomplete pass. And then pass goes for nothing on third and eight. Down four, 4.16 left on fourth and eight on your own 38 and you punt? I hated that from Brian Harson because then South Carolina drains the clock and you know, you're, you're gonna be able to get the ball back with a couple minutes left. But then of course, in almost ball don't lie fashion because of the way that Harson and Bobo treated the end of that game, you get that strange, did he or did he not touch it on the punt return? The first look that they showed and they, even on the broadcast, Robert Griffin, who gets just so animated in some of these broadcasts, you're like, buddy, you are doing your best Tony Romo imitation. You need to just take it down a notch. He's like, oh, this isn't even close. <laughs> let's let's just move on. What, what are we reviewing this for? And then you get the other angles, and you're like, well, okay, I can at least see why they're reviewing it. But I thought, all right, call on the field was that the Auburn player didn't touch it. So at least I'll get to watch Mike Bobo's horrendous attempt at a two-minute drill. And then after several minutes, they overturned it. And I was baffled because I thought it was totally inconclusive. And I know, and my guy Brad Crawford was saying, well, you have to judge the way that the player reacted to that as well. Which, okay, <laughs> I get it that he reacted to that. And some people would say he's only reacting like that unless the ball touched him. You could also just have the presence of mind and be like, oh, hey, a football is you know three inches away from touching me. I, I now have that sense to be able to, to, to try and get away from it. I think that's a, there was a lot of judgment on that play. And I, South Carolina fans might disagree. I just thought it was inconclusive. The other thing with that too, Auburn fans, be honest with yourself. Was, you, was your offense going to march down the field and score a touchdown for the first time in almost 45 minutes? Probably not. <laughs> but still, you'd like to tell yourself that that was the difference in that game. Auburn lost a double-digit lead for the second consecutive week. 12 second half points in the last four games. Just three scoring drives in there. 22 drives and you scored on three of them. 
That sucks. More turnovers than scoring drives in the last four Auburn second halves. That's coaching, and Brian Harson deserves plenty of blame for losing three straight and two straight where you feel like you're in prime position, and especially with that ground game, you should not lose those games. So on the South Carolina side, here's your perspective. The stat that I always bring up is what? South Carolina came into this season ranked number 125 out of 127 FBS teams in percentage of returning production, and that was from a two-win team. Now keep in mind, this is a team that's down to its third-string quarterback. Shout out to Jason Brown, new friend of the show. And this is a first-time head coach. And South Carolina is now 6-5, and five, and they're going bowling, having beat Florida and Auburn. Shane Beamer, suddenly in that SEC Coach of the Year conversation. After, you know, five weeks ago, <laughs> there were people saying South Carolina was the SEC's worst team because it needed a miracle to beat Vandy. I tip my cap to Shane Beamer. And in a week in which it was probably a little bit weird to hear that Virginia Tech stuff come up, and I'm sure that he wasn't anticipating that in his first year at South Carolina, but I thought he said and did all of the right things. Others in this business could take note of how to handle that. A certain James Franklin could learn how to do that. I think Shane Beamer and, and Jimbo Fisher have provided, and Mike Tomlin as well, the three examples for how to tell people, hey, I'm not interested in this job. I'm not going anywhere. I'm good here uh, moving forward. And I thought responding this way and winning and seeing his emotion, I, all right, I know this is gonna be, this is gonna be one of those things that we as a public, like we'll probably turn on because we're a hater society in three or four years. For now, I absolutely love watching Shane Beamer react after these games with his family. Like that, I don't have kids yet or anything like that, but I, I just love it when his kids just come up and they bear hug him and his wife is just like, the dude is just like living his best life. And to me, it's so cool to see. And I am a, a Shane Beamer believer. And one of the things that I said coming into this year was, look, I think that they're going to go five and seven, but I think that they end the season with as much momentum as any first year head coach in the SEC. And now there's a conversation to be had about whether or not he's going to have as much momentum as Josh Heupel, kind of TBD on that. But right now, man, South Carolina fans have to be feeling so, so good. This is a great reminder, right as we head into coaching carousel season, that if you're caught up in, oh, you know, this guy has been an offensive coordinator for this many years, or this guy has been a head coach at this level, blah, 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 blah. Sam Pittman, Shane Beamer, kind of bucking that trend. And that Odron bucked that trend a couple years ago. Say what you want about him right now. But I'm just a believer that you just got to go get the right person. <laughs> just get the right person. Shane Beamer looks like the right person for South Carolina and his fan base should be just so ecstatic that he is in Columbia because man, what a difference a year makes. We're talking about paying $13 million buyouts to fire Will Muschamp after amidst a, a two-win season. Times have changed in a hurry in Columbia. All right, Vandy Ole Miss. It was the Matt Corral send-off game. We found out this week that Matt Corral is off to the NFL. So last home game for him, it's crazy to think that the guy had two years of eligibility left after this one. Remember, because he took that red shirt in 2018, he took advantage of the four game threshold and then 2020 didn't count against anyone. But let's be honest, we knew that Matt Corral was going to the NFL. 
I'm an idiot for not thinking of that when I said, Lane, please sit Matt Corral. That was never gonna really happen in his last home game. Matt Corral penned a nice letter to the Ole Miss faithful. Really cool to see that and the way that he was treated uh, pregame and, and seeing him and Sam Williams kind of honored in that way was was really, really cool for guys who who stuck it out and have now reaped the rewards of, of, of being able to stick around for the Lane Kiffin era. The plan for him on Saturday night though was score a bunch of points early, slide when you need to, and get out healthy for the Egg Bowl. Didn't quite happen. Not quite to the level that Lane was hoping for. Ole Miss won by 14, and they're undefeated at home this year, which Kiffin said afterwards, absolutely a feat worth celebrating. But that was a disappointing showing because you had starters out there late in the fourth quarter when ideally you would have been up 28 at half and you would have basically said, starters, go play the first series of the second half and then we're going to put this thing on ice, chill, we have the Egg Bowl coming up on Thursday. Matt Corral even had a bad interception in the red zone late and Kiffin, I think, broke his headset. That was um, great, great on the call to have Tom Hart, Jordan Rogers, Cole Kubelik, our guys down there on the field, all of them down on the field there. They were like right next to Kiffin and he slammed his headset down. That broadcast was was tremendous and I had that going the entire time. It was great to be able to hear those guys and kind of see some of those little insights that I'm sure Cole would have been able to also have that from the sideline, but you get what I'm saying. It was it felt like a different sort of feel to be able to, to kind of process some of those things in the heat of the moment. So they really did not get the game plan that they wanted to. Ole Miss didn't. The running game didn't get going, and Mike Wright, the Vandy quarterback, converted on third or fourth down a total of 12 times. Vandy held the ball for 40 minutes of this one, which that kind of explains why Ole Miss couldn't really get into a rhythm for multiple drives after that blistering start where first like minute of the game, they come out, they just march right down the field. And you're like, this is, this is Swiss cheese, this defense, man. They're, they're going to just roll in this one. But the good news for Ole Miss... Corral got out without injury, and now you've got a chance for your first ever 10-win regular season against Mississippi State this week. The Egg Bowl buzz is off the charts. I saw David Johnson saying afterwards that talk about the Egg Bowl <laughs> happened roughly like, you know, like just a few minutes after they really closed the book on Vandy. That's, that's how big this rivalry is. I cannot wait for it. Going to be the first time that both teams are ranked since Dax last year in Starkville back in 2015. Should be just an incredible atmosphere. Can't wait to see that one on Thursday night. I wanna talk about the Lane Kiffin Miami rumors real quick. And I've had a rant kind of building up for a little bit now because when this came out, and it was a Slater scoop, Andy Slater <sighs> tweeted that, uh, that Kiffin would accept the Miami job. And I let out just the biggest eye roll ever because that is an agent-fueled scoop if I've ever heard one. Every once in a while, I get reminded that people are still living eh, like two decades in the past, and this was one of them. Why in the world would Lane Kiffin take the Miami job? If your response to that is, well, because you'd rather live in Miami than Mississippi. If that's your response, I blame myself because I haven't taught the listeners of this podcast well enough. Lane has a house in Boca still. All right, he can still get his South Florida fix in the rare times of the year when he actually has some time to kill. Everyone telling me, oh, it's so much easier to win in the ACC than in the SEC, and Lane recognizes that. A couple things there. First of all, in what world is it easy to win in Miami? Fans don't show up, 
They've been to the ACC championship game once in the 18 years that they've been a member of the conference. That's also the lifespan of a current recruit who wasn't even alive when Ed Reed was wrecking fools and playing hurt dog. Shout out to that clip. I love that clip. That'll never get old. Also, do you really think that Lane Kiffin is going to be like, hey, you know what? After spending two years at Ole Miss and having this great year two, I have processed now that it actually is harder to win in the SEC than I thought, and I'm just going to bounce for the ACC. If your response to that is, well, he did that when he left Tennessee for USC. Again, if that's your response, I failed you. Because taking over for Pete Carroll after watching the Trojans dominate for an entire decade is a whole lot different than taking over a Miami program that hasn't had consecutive top 15 seasons as a member of the ACC. If Kiffin were to leave, why would he go to rebuild a program from the ground up, which is what you would have to do at Miami? Like, wouldn't it make sense to go to a place where you can win titles? If Kiffin's going anywhere, he's going to a team with a championship-ready roster. By the way, Everyone is saying that Miami's got a higher ceiling than Ole Miss. Kiffin's a win away from putting together the highest regular season win total in program history. Also of note, Lane Kiffin's in year two. Also, also of note, Miami has one 10-win season in that 18-year stretch. So many people think that it's still 2001, and it's just not. Everyone recruits the crap out of South Florida. Everyone spends ridiculous amounts of money on facilities. And Miami needed Kirk Herbstreit to call them out for their thriftiness to be like, hey, you know what we should do? We should spend 20 to $30 million more on facilities. We get it now. Miami's not getting Lane Kiffin. I get why they tried to, and I get why Nevin Shapiro, those people would come out and be like, hey, if they fire Manny Diaz, which that's what it seems like they're gonna do, then hey, why wouldn't you go after Lane Kiffin? Makes perfect sense. No chance. None. Not going to happen. Rant over. Let's go to my interview with Ty Story. Figured the timing of this would be good considering uh, that was supposed to be a cupcake week game for Arkansas against Western Kentucky back in 2019. And Ty Story just took a machete to the Chad Morris era. And it turned out to be the last call for Chad Morris. So we talked about that why the Morris offense just didn't work and some other stuff having seen that bizarre era of Arkansas football up close and kind of what it's like to be able to step back and, and see it now and see what Sam Pittman's doing. So here is Ty Story. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is former Arkansas quarterback and former Western Kentucky quarterback, Ty Story. Ty, you're back in the state of Arkansas as a coach, but do people associate you more for being at Western Kentucky because of the success that you had there or for your time spent at Arkansas? Uh, man, it's really, it's pretty, pretty even just probably depending on where, who I'm, who I'm with or who I'm talking to. But I know a lot of people up here still obviously remember me from uh, my days at Arkansas. It's kind of funny. Some of my kids were actually showing me pictures of like times they, they came to an Arkansas game or they got a picture with me or something. So it's um i'd say it's pretty even just depends on what it is obviously going back and uh beating arkansas that was probably the most uh memorable moment that people remember me for but pretty even well i want to i definitely want to dig into that and if you know if you think about it arkansas fans should probably be like thanking you for this turnaround under under sam Pittman because 
You did something that so few of us get to do in our lifetime. It's one thing to win a breakup. It's another to win the breakup in such convincing fashion that your ex who thought that they were too good for you gets fired as a result of something that you did to them. We're sort of crossing metaphors here, but you get what I mean. Do you have Arkansas fans who thank you for what you did in Fayetteville two years ago? Yeah, I'll get a, I'll get a random Twitter message or random Twitter uh, a DM every once in a while just talking about... Uh, how thankful they are and how, how it all went down. And I mean, it's just kind of funny. It's, it's, I mean, it's not a, it's not a great thing. Cause I mean, people are losing jobs and stuff over that, but it's kind of just the nature of the beast. So the, um, yeah, it's definitely still brought up with uh, a certain few people. Be honest. That, that wasn't just another game. And I, I know you talked about it before, but you know, you had 58 tickets to give out. I saw that Tyson Helton, your coach at Western Kentucky, he said afterwards that he saw your eyes just narrow once that game started. The prep, the motivation, the the how do you like me now? It just probably had to be on a different level for you that day, wasn't it? Man, yeah, it was, and it really was all week. And and what was awesome about it is that my teammates knew how much that that meant for me, and and not just me. I mean, any time a conference USA team gets to come in and and play an SEC school or a, or a Power Five school for that matter, it's it's kind of it's different, right? People want to show that hey it's not there's not not all the ball players just go to those those five conferences so um everyone it was just pretty awesome to see how everyone kind of rallied around that and it felt like everyone kind of had that that extra edge to them and and wanted to wanted to get something done with that game and that game was over at halftime so you probably had a lot of time to be able to kind of prepare your thoughts how you're going to treat it post game all that stuff but I remember seeing there was pictures of you and Chad Morris kind of meeting uh, in the middle of the field after the game. What can you share from from your interaction with him? Uh, man, it was it was all respect. It really was. Um, there was there was never really any hard feelings between it. I mean, kind of like I was talking about earlier. It's just it's the it's what it is. It's business, right? So it was it was all good. I mean, we talked before the game, and he just came up and said he was proud of me and how how I handled things. And I was obviously telling him I've been watching them and hoping the best for him. Um, and then after the game, I mean, it kind of ended how it did. And it was a lot more brief after the game, obviously, just because everything's going on. And then uh, just being able to see those guys again though was was uh, it was kind of a weird weird moment. Just spending, I mean, four years of your life with most of those guys on the other side, and then seeing him after the game and, and being on the opposite side, it was just kind of a surreal moment, but it was also just a, just a cool thing to be a part of. What's kind of crazy too, is you were committed to Arkansas for so long. I mean, you're a Gatorade player of the year in the state. Like you grew up Arkansas through and through. And so for a lot of those guys, like, you know, they're part of your recruiting class. You're going on visits with them and, and you probably had a different sort of connection to that program. So like, I imagine looking around that stadium afterwards, it had to be just like the ultimate bittersweet feeling, realizing what that meant and the people whose lives were impacted that day. Did you kind of get a chance to like get some perspective on that? Did, I, I imagine that kind of took a while to, to sink in. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say, I mean, that was more the kind of the after the, when we got back to Bowling Green and, and kind of settled down, it kind of was like that, kind of all that started hitting you at once, you know, and Obviously, when we won, I mean, just just seeing our team and how how happy everyone was, and I mean, I think that was the game that pushed us into bowl eligibility. So I know that was uh, 
everybody was pumped up after that because I mean the year before Western went uh, I think they were they won three games so a lot of those guys those younger guys never have been able to witness a bowl so um, just with with that in, in mind and beating an SEC school like we did I mean everyone was just it was just a different level of emotions and then when you get home and then you kind of start call, start calling back some of those guys from Arkansas and texting them back and then it kind of it kind of hits and seeing how how it affected that program from from just that I mean not just that game that's not the one it's obviously the one that did them in but leading up to that I know a lot of people over there were very aggravated so it was kind of a a relief to some of them in a way take me back to when you were going through that process of deciding I'm going to enter the transfer portal because I've always wanted to know this you're one of the Chad Morris era. You had more success in that offense than any other quarterback. And it was obviously a revolving door of quarterbacks throughout the Chad Morris era. But obviously, the, the team success wasn't there. You decide you're going to transfer that offseason because he obviously was talking to more quarterbacks. And there's rumors about who he's talking to and the amount of you know the amount of turnover that he's probably looking to have at the position. You basically saw, hey, clearly he doesn't want me to be the guy. How did all of that unfold? Yeah, it was it was uh, there was a lot of honesty on both sides, really, and I I do respect that about the situation. I went in uh, early on because, I, and again, there's if looking back, whenever you're not successful, there's so many things you can point at. I mean, a lot of it was me. I mean, I I wish some of those games. I mean, Texas A&M, for instance, and there's some of those games that we were sitting there competing with, and maybe I I didn't come through when I needed to, or something happened where it, it just didn't work out. So it's not just a coaching issue or anything else for sure. But when, when that happened and I know Cole was looking at transferring out, but then I also heard that they were looking at bringing in two quarterbacks, right? Ben Hicks and Starkle was kind of the rumor. Um, so that was kind of the deal. And then um, we, I met with him, talked to him, and then he he was pretty honest. He said, "Man, if if we're if we're gonna we're bringing them in for a visit, and if I know or I have a a feeling that they're gonna come, I'll let you know." Um, so he, I went, I was on a trip somewhere. I don't even remember where it was, but I think it was somewhere in Texas. I stopped at a gas station. I remember getting a call from Coach Morris, and he was pretty honest about it and said, "Hey." Uh, Ben Hicks came up, and I, I do think he's going to uh, commit here. And then at that point, I kind of knew, man, I I feel like the whole – a lot of the issues was a confidence issue with a lot of players. And when you have four or five quarterbacks throughout a year and you're trying to rotate people in, man, it's really it, – it really plays a role in the psyche of your quarterback. And just knowing, hey, the next mistake might be the one that, that does me in and I, I'm not playing anymore, you know, so – I didn't want to get involved in that again, and so that was kind of the the writing on the wall for me. Tell me about that, because we can sit here from, from the outside and look at that situation and, and say, you know, no quarterback is going to be able to get in rhythm if they're constantly worried about this guy coming in, and it just doesn't seem like he can quite make up his mind of, of what he wants it to be. But what was the, the most frustrating moment during that season of – kind of the yo-yo mentality with the quarterback situation where you're just like, man, enough is enough. Like, let me, let me just get my reps here. Just tell me I'm not the guy. Let's just, let's figure this out. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, I don't, I wouldn't say there was like just one moment that I was like, man, well, I mean, I say that obviously after the Missouri game, the way it ended and I mean, we just, towards the end of the year, we, we definitely fell off and I don't know if it was, I mean, kind of an energy thing and a, 
again, the lack of confidence, but we started really venturing off. I mean, if you look back at the a and I mean, even Alabama, LSU, there's a couple of games there where we were like, okay, like we're not closing out these games, but we're competing in them, right? And these are not – these are some top-notch schools. So there was some confidence there for a while, and then some, something happened, and we just lost all mojo. And, again, trying to point your finger at what it was is, is tough to do. But I would say, I mean, with that being said, I don't know if I would have gotten a shot if he didn't try to do the yo-yo effect because – so in late summer, I was doing some. I don't know if you've heard of driveline baseball, but it was kind of it's this uh, it's kind of an arm uh, mechanic thing to try to just strengthen your arm. And I was probably pushing myself a little much, and I ended up getting some bicep tendonitis. So having to battle through that early on in the year, I think that's kind of what did me in probably because there'd be days where I'd come in and I just didn't frankly have what I normally have on the ball, right? So. Um, Going in, losing the battle to Co Kelly, but when we lost it, it was pretty neck and neck. So his his idea was, we're going to go the first three series with Cole, and then you're going to come in uh, that fourth series and, and just see what you can do. And um, obviously, when that happened, when I came in the fourth series, we didn't really move the ball. And then right right when I came in, it, it just all started clicking for us. So I thought that's kind of what what would win me the, the job, and I thought that would carry over. But then uh, a week later, we go to Colorado State and we're we're back to the uh back to the same thing where we're trying to trying to go back and forth. So um I mean just the whole the whole mental part of that of being the guy, okay, now you're the guy, now you got to keep the job, but this one drive could could be the one that ends it. I mean that that really plays a a factor in how you play. I mean and, and it's in anything. I mean that's in the real world and and jobs if you're constantly having to look over your shoulder and think, man, this could be my last screw up. It's it's definitely tough when you don't have that confidence there to start with. You said that he was honest with you and there's been a lot of different things that have kind of come out about his personality and whatnot but what was your relationship like with Chad Morris like compare it to to when he gets there and you were a Bielema era recruit and compare that to to kind of how things developed with him did you feel like you could you could go into his office and talk to him and say hey man like not really feeling this this rotation thing right now. I'm not really liking what we're dialing up on offense. Was there an open line of communication, or did it kind of feel like that was closed off? Uh, I would say it was probably pretty open. I mean, it wasn't. Now, obviously, I wouldn't go in there and start criticizing the play calling. Probably that's that's uh, that'd be hard I'll to just do anybody. That. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good way to find the bench real quick. But um, what was cool about about that is I mean I so I, my whole plan was always to I would obviously wanted to go to the NFL that was kind of the plan number one like everyone is and then plan number two was going to be I'm going to go be a coach so what was really cool about coach Craddock and coach Morris is they would they would let me come in in the offensive meetings and kind of see firsthand how how it was handled behind the scenes you know so I mean to say they completely closed me off or we didn't have a great relationship I, that's I don't think that's the the truth behind it but um i mean at the same time so there's there's plenty of stuff that you can point to and be like man like that might have been the, the thing that lost us a game there you know or maybe how i played so it probably just depends on on who you're talking to on that in that uh scenario 
I asked that because there was that report that came out from the, the inside the team Twitter account right before 2019 SEC media days and a former Arkansas player. There was this quote, uh, Chad Morris did not try to develop any type of relationship with his players. Players hardly hear from him or see him unless there is a camera rolling. He constantly says one thing, but then does another. When you hear that now, having not only been a few years removed from it, but also having played at Western Kentucky, now you've been on a coach on the other side of that relationship as well. Would you say that anonymous quote is fair, unfair, or a little bit of both? I would say a little bit of both. The, the reason I say that is, is I, there was a, a thing, and this is what kind of you respect about Coach Coach Pittman. Uh, just I was with Coach Pittman for a little bit, and seeing how he kind of handled when he came in, and comparing it to Coach Morris, I could see where some people would get rubbed the wrong way, and some people did. I mean, you heard in the locker rooms, right? Um, some things were were said in the media that was kind of kind of had a a feeling that hey. Now is not the time to win. We we got to wait till we get our recruiting our our guys in here. And uh, hearing that as a player that's already there and knowing you're not the guys they're talking about, it it does. I mean, it affects you. So that's a. I do think that was one thing that that lost a lot of guys um, early on. And I mean, you could see. And and with this being said, I mean, I, and I know I, I'm not. It's not me not trying to step on toes or anything, but at the same time, you can see both sides of it. I mean, they they were trying to they, – they went out and recruited really well. I mean, they really did. Uh, you look at some of the guys they have now, and, I mean, those are, are really Morris recruits. I mean, and some of them are in-state guys like Burks and uh, uh, some of the other guys, but that was, uh, that was kind of uh, part of it. But, uh, yeah, I could see where some guys would get frustrated. But you could go back to Bielema, and there's going to be some guys that were frustrated with how that was handled too. Um, moral of the story is when it when it doesn't go right, there's going to be there's going to be some complaints and some some things that come out that probably aren't so good. It's reality, but it sucks. That that's the way that. And from the outside, obviously, I have a different perspective on it than, than you do. But you're exactly right. And so many programs right now across college football are dealing with that. We're seeing all these coaches that get fired midseason. And I always come back to, yeah, I get I get it from the business standpoint. But you're basically telling so many of those veterans in that locker room, hey, we're, we're, we're punting on this year. We're kind of giving up on this. And you could say the pushback is, well, win more games. It still doesn't change your week-to-week desire to compete and to, to want to fight for for a head coach. So when you make that decision and decide, all right, they're bringing in Ben Hicks. Uh, um, I, I got to find a place I'm going to be able to play because clearly, you know, even if I do stay here, it could be from one series to the next. You don't really know what to expect. In my head, I just always tell myself that you made your transfer decision strictly based on getting the chance to play against Arkansas. Two things. First, tell me that's exactly what happened, and if it didn't, please tell me your reaction when you saw that Arkansas was on Western Kentucky's schedule. Uh, I mean, probably not solely based on that, but I did uh, check out the schedule, and they made sure to let me know when when they were talking to me that we do play Arkansas and we do go back to uh, Donald W. Reynolds Stadium, and you are going to have a chance to get a little little back, back at them a little bit. So... To say it was based solely on that, probably not completely true because I knew the success that some of those coaches at WKU has had and how they kind of had a lot of things in place that looked good, a lot of it being some veteran players that 
weren't necessarily their guys, kind of like what we were talking about, but they've had success in the past. So, um, yeah, kind of, I guess you can, if you want, if, if it makes it a better, we can, we can go with that. But that it's part of the pitch. If you're Western Kentucky and if you don't make that part of the pitch, you're an idiot. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, I agree. And they did a good job. They did a good job playing that up. So to, uh, yeah, that's, um, it was, it was definitely cool. Why was Chad Morris's offense, why was it so unfriendly to quarterbacks besides just the rotation stuff, the schematics? I mean, and this was after you left, but seeing now the player that Traylon Burks has become and seeing him not score a touchdown in that offense in 2019 and some of those things where you're just like, man, this, this is baffling. It doesn't matter who he brings in. It just seems like for whatever reason, somebody's inevitably going to struggle and then he's going to try and bring in somebody else and it just doesn't work. So what was it schematically that just was like, man, this is this just doesn't really click? Um, yeah, I've, I've kind of thought about that. And I think, honestly, and again, there's time and places for any type of play. I mean, there's, especially when you're talking about college type level coaches, there's, they they know what they're doing in a sense, right? Now the the issue, the biggest issue I think we ran into was a lot of uh, Coach Morris's offense is RPO driven, um, like so he would call it a uh, red balls, and that's that's like the we're going super fast uh, type plays, and the whole part of RPO is just trying to find your numbers, right? The the issue when you start doing that is when teams like Alabama or LSU or I mean, any really most everybody in the conference, besides some of the Mississippi schools, was they would just go man free. So your numbers games go out the window. I mean, everyone's just one on one at that point, and it's not like it's it's cover four to the field. The the uh, backers kind of tucked in. We got numbers out there. If we get out a, a quick bubble instead of instead of running it, right? Now it's just they roll down. You're manned up everywhere across the board. They're bringing Sampire off the edge. So we're, I mean, you're you don't have you, – you have a one-on-one matchup. So that's kind of your, your best numbers you have. And when we were there, it was – I mean, I think a lot of it was Alabama thinking we we have better uh, athletes than you guys, so we're just going to dog you up at the line of scrimmage and you're, you're going to struggle. And we're going to make your quarterback throw it in, in tight windows. And I would say it was a, a little bit of all of our faults. I don't know if – I mean, I didn't obviously uh, deliver enough accurate balls in, in uh, smaller windows. And – and we didn't create a lot of separation. So if you get down kind of to the schematics of it, I think that was the biggest deal. When he was at SMU, I mean, you have Cortland Sutton, you have some dudes. And one-on-one balls with with that is 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 different, right? Not to say we didn't have dudes. I mean, we had T.J. O'Grady, we had LaMichael Petway, we had uh, Deion Stewart, but it was just very, very different, uh, very different in the SEC compared to, to having all the, the big fish in a, in a smaller pond in a smaller conference. It's easy now to look back and say, well, Hunter Juracek was really smart to pull the plug on that, and you make the transition to the Sam Pittman era, of course, but it, it, this is super hypothetical. But if the Sam Pittman era, we did, if we didn't have that context now of what he's been able to do in his first two years there, could it have worked if he had just said, you know what? We're gonna give this thing four years, maybe maybe even five years. Would it ever have worked, or would it always have been disappointing? And always, Arkansas would have just been in the bottom of the barrel for four years. 
it's hard to say. I mean, like I said, when they recruited, they they did a really good job. They brought in some dudes that that could really help us. Um, just I mean, but at the end of the day, you are you're battling. It's an uphill battle. When you start losing like that, it's hard to win over the kids. It's hard to get the spirits back up. It's hard to get the kids to buy back in. So to say either way, I mean, I'm not. You can't. You couldn't say either way if it it would work or not. It just it would all depend on how how the off season went if they if they made some some changes if they if they got the kids to buy back in so you can't really accurately say what it would it have worked or would it have not i know i know a lot of kids were which again when you lose kids are going to be kids are going to be down and to find a way to to get them to buy back in that that's probably the hardest part in coaching in my short few years to that i have coached it's it's really hard, and being around players in general. I mean, when morale's low and we're losing ball games, man, you you got to be really creative and really find ways to to do it. When you're when you have an established program, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but it is definitely a lot easier to keep that momentum going than when you're struggling every week to put points on the board and and guys are scoring on you left and right and players are getting upset, players are transferring out, players don't feel like they have the comp or you're not giving them the confidence you need. That's it's uh, it is very it's a it's uphill battle that's for sure. So is that your way of saying club dub was actually a good idea? <laughs> Man, I was never around it for club dub, so I don't I don't know I don't know anything about it. I mean, we kind of had our own version of club dub and our few wins we did have after after leaving the facilities, but I don't I don't know much about club dub besides the fact that the from the short videos I did see. But looking back on it, not working, probably uh, probably one of the ideas we'll have to throw out in the future. Yeah, yeah. well, as a fan <laughs> of the Chicago Bears who also had a club dub, I'd like to just permanently punt on club dub. Let's, uh, let's leave that for, for, for somebody else. Club you dub. became known. Say that again. Sorry about that. Club dub has not had too much success, it looks like. So I don't know. I'm kind of no. with you. you got to take it into account and see how it's working. Take the, the statistics from it. Amen. Amen. You became known for, for playing a, a pivotal role in the Chad Morris era, but you're a four-star recruit who turned down places like Alabama and Auburn. Is there a, uh, a Bielema story that, that stands out maybe during the recruiting process? Oh man, it's been a long time since I thought about a Bielema story. Um, <laughs> man, I, I don't know. I don't know like any good stories. Now, now Bielema was a, like a player's coach. He really was a lot of, players love playing for him. I mean, obviously he loved his big O lineman. He treated those guys really well. Um, for a, just a Bielema story in general, it's, it's kind of hard to come up with one. If you just don't know who he is, he's a, he's a dude that I, that is going to be able to recruit those O linemen. Cause I mean, he, those are the guys he bonds with. So uh, being a, just being around that and seeing how he treated those guys and kind of his, uh, his way to go around things. He was pretty, pretty laid back and very, pretty funny at times. So, I don't know. Are you uh, very familiar with Bielema? Oh, I am. Having followed, having followed the Big Ten for for a long time. I mean, I I, I know I, I know of Bielema well, and it seems like he's just such a unique guy in the sport. But I, I wish we could have seen him a little bit longer in the SEC in the way that it kind of flamed out with him getting fired before he even got to step off the field. I wanted more Bielema stories, so that's why I, I always find myself wanting to ask former players about that. I'll have to think of one, and I'll maybe I'll shoot you a, a, 
a message back on it. But I don't have anything off the top of my head that's probably uh, probably good to talk about right here. <laughs> we'll we'll save that for for a later date. Um, tell me tell me what your relationship with Arkansas is like now. There are so many of these these veterans like you know Grant Morgan, Hayden Henry, Davion Warren. I'm sure you're still close to a few guys there. Are you an Arkansas fan? Like, do you find yourself wishing you could play in this offense? Like, what's that whole dynamic like? Oh yeah, for sure. I uh, no, I keep up with a lot of those guys still, and I'll shoot them uh, messages back and forth. Uh, I'm proud of them, man. I really am. It's it's cool to see how they they turn that around and. And kind of that's that's the seeing them go beat beat Texas at home and and all the success they had it for sure kind of gives you those goosebumps and and wishes uh, things might have went a little differently but uh, I'm happy for those guys and, and how they're doing and actually I'm going to a, a practice today to to kind of check in on them I mean I'm only probably 30 minutes from uh, Fayetteville right now so go uh, I want to go check and just see kind of some of the stuff they're doing uh, schematically and and maybe. Uh, uh, just kind of get some good ideas for the future. I know Sam Pittman's got a lot of incentives in his deal. He's got to have a percentage cut, a tie story percentage cut that he just gives you for every, like based on every incentive because of the fact that he probably wouldn't have gotten that job unless you sort of provided the dagger as we talked about a, a couple years ago. Are you, are you cool with Pittman? Like, do you, are you able to like kind of, I know you didn't get to play for him or anything like that, but do you get to kind of like shoot the breeze with him? Uh, yeah, and I'm all for that. If you want to send that his way and see if we can get something worked out on that, I'm I'm all for that. I'll sign off on that. But um, no, yeah, uh, Coach Pittman. Uh, so he was actually there when I was getting recruited. Him and Chaney were my first, uh, uh, my like first two guys that really recruited me. Um, oh, that's crazy. which was which, that's yeah, that's how many. I mean, I think learning we had four different offenses in my five years of playing football. So that's kind of the. Uh, the blessing with the curse, uh, being able to be around all that stuff. But no, he was always an awesome dude. And his, uh, talking about how he relates to those alignment, man, Pittman's on a, just a completely, it's just completely different, man. He could go into inner city Miami and, and talk to those guys and, and they would come out loving the man. And then he could go to the most rural part of Texas and talk to that guy and completely come out loving that dude. So there is, a uh, there is no doubt when they hired Pittman, I know a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of my buddies from college are obviously O linemen, and they were all hyped for him. And I was too, because he's a he's a pretty he's a genuine dude, and he's he's pretty cool. Now, when we came out, I tried to uh, do a pro day up there, and that kind of uh, fizzled out. He he didn't he he was very respectful about it, and he was like, "Man, I love you, but we uh, probably not a good look for the program." So that was my kind of. Uh, <laughs> Same, but at the same time, I, I completely see that side where probably not a great look if I came back and did a pro day at Arkansas. But no, it's all all good. I respect that actually. The fact that you went back there to the place where you disappointed so many people on that day, and then to go back and be like, "Hey, I'm a, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and get to the next level here. Get some get some scouts involved. Like y'all are cool with that, right? Like was it like?" He didn't. I, I'm sure he did it in a very respectful way. He didn't like say, "Hey, you need to get off the field right now." Did he give you at least like a half hour or something to be able to get some reps in? <laughs> no, that's not exactly how I played out. I didn't just show up like with my cleats in hand, ready to ready to roll. It was more of a reaching out to him. And I mean, there was a lot of coaches still there. I know Coach Allen, and uh, there were several coaches there that were still there. So it's more of a like message, like, "Hey guys, uh, 
really uh, miss you guys. Would y'all mind if I came back and threw to some of our receivers at Pro Day? And that was kind of the the way that went. But, no, I probably should have just showed up and, and seen just to see what would happen. I'm assuming uh, security get rid of me real quick. But Yeah. Mate, put it on them. Put the pressure on them. Make them say, hey, get off this field right now. We can't have you. It's tougher to say no than to that, to that than it is a, a text or, or a phone call or something like that. Um, I... I've wanted to know for for a little bit now. How did how did your your whole experience, everything, you know, Chad Morris era, even Bilal Mustaf, you know, getting to to have that year that you did at Western Kentucky. How, how did all that prepare you for the, this next phase of life that you're in? Uh, I mean, it's it was huge. I mean, that's that. I mean, kind of like what I said, four offenses in five years, and they were all completely di- completely different. I mean, learning Cheney's offense. Now Cheney was there very. Coach Cheney was there very short, but learning a complete pro-style offense to go to Coach Enos, which was more of a multiple offense, but uh, still very, uh, I mean, under center, very pro-like. But then going to Morris, who was completely spread, did some really good RPO stuff, um, a lot more kind of more high school stuff that I, or that I did in high school. And then going to Western, which was kind of a little bit of all of that. Like Western would literally see – someone do something that was maybe completely pro style and we'd throw that in or it was very very multiple uh so being able to learn all that stuff i mean that's like that is the most that's like being a ga for for 10 years because you're constantly in that you're constantly going to work and and learning that stuff and actually having to go out and do what what you're teaching people to do so um i, I mean just being having that that uh in my past and being able to go teach these uh these athletes now what what to do i mean it's it definitely i can kind of see it through their eyes and tell them well if i i read it like this but the way they're gonna people really teach you to read this way but you got to be aware of this and and all that little different those little different things you never know if you don't go through it so i wouldn't have uh, really changed it for the world the people i met i mean the people i was around the the lifelong friends i mean it's even though it, it probably didn't go, obviously, the the way I would – I mean, I would have loved to be able to turn Arkansas around and get that going in a successful way, but um, it it's, is what it is, and I still, I still enjoyed my time for sure. Any one thing that you could go back and just change? It, it could even be as specific as like – Oh, a throw that I made against Texas A&M, or like some not to not to <laughs> pour salt on the wood there, but any one thing. That was for sure the first one that, thing that popped in my head. I would have loved to be at A&M uh, down there in Arlington. I mean, we we were driving on them there late, and I remember. I, and this is a, just a young. I mean, I wasn't. I was obviously a, what a junior at that point, but not having the experience of actually being in the game and staring down an inside uh, fade route and just letting the one high safety go and pick it off. That was pretty stupid looking back on it. Um, that would definitely be one thing. Um, but I mean, there was, there was, I mean, I mean, besides those couple little, little plays here and there, I mean, I don't think I would have really done much else too different. I mean, Arkansas was my hometown, home state. I mean, I wanted to go play at that point. People always ask me, why would you go there when you had offers from Bama and Auburn and all, all these other places. But at, I mean, at that point, when I got there, we just beat Texas and the Texas bowl, it kind of felt in a way like what it, what it feels now where it's kind of on up and up probably not to the same degree as now. Uh, they've had a little more success, but it was kind of up and coming and being the home state kid. I mean, it was kind of hard to pass that up at that point. So 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of how it played out, and that's just life for you sometimes. You got to roll with the punches. Not wrong about that. Ty, I really appreciate the time, man. Best of luck with everything you've got going on. Uh, hoping nothing but success moving forward with everything with uh, with coaching, with life, and and everything. Wishing, uh, wishing the best for you, man. Man, I really appreciate it. You need anything, holler. Let's close out with predicting some playoff rankings. It was a very interesting Saturday at the top of the playoff rankings with how well Ohio State played in a game that, quite frankly, should have pushed them. I thought was going to push them with a job that they did, being able to get that early lead. Buckeyes looked legit. And obviously, we knew there was going to be some sort of shakeup within the top six, top seven. You get to see Oregon lose that game. Uh, oh, God, lock of the week. I just remembered. That's not good. That didn't even come close. Couldn't even text Joe Moorhead and be like, hey, man, uh, points would be good right about now. Didn't want to go there, but Oregon is going to fall way outside of the top four. So let's predict some playoff rankings. Number one, I've got Georgia. Of course, I think the dogs are one win away from having a playoff bid locked up. And against the Georgia Tech team that just got steamrolled by Notre Dame, I expect that to be a walk in the park for the dogs. They'll have a playoff bid locked up by the time they reach Atlanta. Number two, I think Alabama is going to stay there. And I think they're going to stay there because you still beat a top 25 team. Alabama hasn't had this loss per se that would drop them back. And I think at this point, that's really the only thing that will drop them according to the selection committee. And then number three, I'm going to actually give them their praise. I think Ohio State should be three. They finally beat that quality top 10 team and they beat them like a drum. That game was over from the, the end of the first quarter. I mean, it was quite the quite the offensive statement and i am now really fascinated to see what they could potentially do against georgia more on that in a second here i think cincinnati comes in at number four i think for the first time in the history of the playoff rankings we see a group of five team ranked in the top four and i think the bearcats deserve that after you know on a smaller smaller scale they just clubbed SMU, a game that some people were saying was going to be really tricky. Maybe it's going to go down to the wire. Cincinnati got all those style points that they've been lacking in recent weeks. So I think the Bearcats come in at four. And then Michigan, who pounded Maryland on the road at number five, which sets up a great matchup to end the season with Ohio State and Michigan, both of which with Big Ten Championship hopes on the line with college football playoff hopes on the line. That's going to be the game of the week in college football. And then six, I think Notre Dame will come in. Irish should keep winning, man. They just keep winning. Only one loss, of course, the home loss to Cincinnati. And then I think Oklahoma State at seven is intriguing because I'm not ruling out Oklahoma State winning out and making the playoff. Winning out is still going to be difficult because they're going to have to win against, I think they would have to win against um, Oklahoma and then either Baylor or Oklahoma the way that that plays out. I guess that would, that would be Baylor then. They would have to beat in the Big 12 championship. So I would assume that it's going to be a difficult road, a road similar to the one that Oregon just faced and ultimately wasn't able to navigate through by virtue of getting shellacked by Utah. At eight, I have Baylor and then nine, I have Ole Miss. I think Ole Miss will still be ranked behind Baylor. It didn't really show a lot against Vandy, but they're in position to be able to move up into the top 10 by virtue of having just two losses and having a couple of, of, of nice wins there, even though I, I think that you can make the case that there are some two-loss teams with better resumes 
like Oregon, who Oregon has the Ohio State win, but I just think after the way that they lost to Utah, they come in at number 10 and Ole Miss maybe gets the benefit of the doubt. Okay, Ohio State now looks like a legit competitor for Georgia. And maybe they won't be, but it's because of how they can beat you. That was something. And we knew this, this group of receivers was special with Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, and Jackson Smith and Nickba, and they looked the part. I mean, they all went over 100 in this game. Like, they're all probably going to get to 1,000 yards this year, which is just nuts. This is an Ohio State team that can do all of the things that we at least have questions about with Georgia. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to beat Georgia, but what did we talk about with Tennessee? What would it look like when you actually are able to put some pressure on the likes of Darian Kendrick and Kaylee Ringo and a game in which you probably wish you could have Tyke Smith, the West Virginia transfer who's out for the year. Can Ohio State potentially exploit that? Will Ohio State get the chance to exploit that? I think if Ohio State wins out, they could be in that spot for a number two seed. And if Georgia wins out, they would be in that number one seed. So maybe we're talking about a college football playoff national championship. We'll kind of wait and see. It's kind of weird to think that we haven't seen these two teams play in the playoff era. Despite the fact that everybody kind of links them together and we associate them so closely, we haven't seen that matchup. I now find myself saying, that's what I want to see. I actually want to see that even more than Georgia-Bama, and maybe part of that is because it feels like we've seen that repeatedly. We even just saw it last year, albeit with the Georgia offense in a different place, albeit with the Georgia defense in a different place. But that's the one that I, I now find myself hoping that we get because it does start. it is starting to feel like the two best teams in college football, and if Ohio State actually looks competent against the run, uh, Kenneth Walker held to 25 rushing yards on six carries. That was a little bit game script, very much game script. It's kind of hard to run the ball when you're down 28 to nothing. But Ohio State now finally looking the part, now finally worthy of being ranked in the top four. I think this is all just shaping up perfectly for Cincinnati. I really do. Because Notre Dame keeps winning, Houston won again. They won again on Friday night. I don't think a two-loss Ohio State or Michigan team who doesn't even play for a Big Ten championship has enough quality wins to steal a bid from Cincinnati. You've got two Power Five leagues, the ACC and the Pac-12, who are eliminated before conference championship weekend. And contrary to what Lee Corso said, look, I, I love Corso, but this was like, okay, what, what are we doing here? Having that decisive win at Notre Dame should benefit Cincinnati. I'm sorry, one loss, Notre Dame doesn't deserve to make the field over undefeated Cincinnati when Cincinnati beat Notre Dame in South Bend by double digits. But anyways, I digress. Oklahoma State is going to be the wild card in all of this. And I'm not 100% certain that a one-loss Oklahoma State team would automatically be in ahead of Cincinnati. But there's at least that possibility, and I'm sure the Bearcats would love to just see Oklahoma State lose, at bed, lose in Bedlam, and then they can kind of control their own destiny to a playoff spot. And that's what I think we could be talking about. Just a heads up, a little housekeeping here. We are recording before next Tuesday's ranking, but the podcast will come out like early, early Wednesday morning. So we're not going to know the exact rankings by the time that comes out. I think we kind of gave you a pretty good picture there. And I don't expect too many stunners in that ranking and I don't really think it really changes a whole lot of what we've been talking about. So keep that in mind. The good news is that means the pod is going to drop a day early for everyone. If you're doing some traveling on Wednesday, going to some see some family for Thanksgiving, 
safe travels, everyone. Hopefully you can have this podcast downloaded. You can be able to listen to it on your drive there. I'm really excited about the pod that we got coming up midweek, rivalry week to preview. We've got a great guest lined up, somebody we've had on before but haven't had on in a while. been trying to get this person back on for a bit now, and he's just very, very busy, so look forward to that one. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Go subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to our newsletter. Subscribe to College Football Uncensored, Saturday List Forever, wherever you get your podcast. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name read on air with Figuring It Out or Bold and Breath. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.